Well, this morning we are back in our study of Romans chapter 3. So turn there, if you would, Romans chapter 3. No doubt we live in a world today that is really nothing more than an extension of the immorality of the past. Now, the things that you and I do daily have certainly changed. Uh, The things that occupy our time have changed. Technology has changed. As a whole, certainly the way that we function has changed since times past. But yet one thing still remains. You can go back as far as you want to go, and you will notice that we still love sin. The heart of man The heart of every man is sinful. Male, female, black, white, Jew, Gentile. It doesn't matter. As we have seen so far since the middle of chapter 1, sin shows no favoritism, right? It comes out of all of us. In chapter 1, Paul speaks of, of how man suppresses the truth by their wickedness, even denying the God, our God, the only God, who created them. Even though man has some, or if you will, limited knowledge of God through creation, right? God revealed himself to us through creation. We see that we have exchanged it for idols. Now, we have different idols today. We don't carry around little wooden things like they used to. But we see what took place even in the early church, chapter 1, verse 25. It says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Can you imagine? You have a choice. Pick, pick this or pick this. I'll take the lie. They exchanged the truth of God for lie, and they worshiped and served created things rather than their creator, right? We then read how God created men and women to come together as we move forward in there. He says that is natural. A man and a woman, he says, is natural. Yet man and man and and, and woman and woman come together what he calls unnatural, He calls homosexual relationships shameful. He calls them indecent. He calls them perversion. What God calls an abomination in the Old Testament today, people take pride in that behavior. Still in chapter 1, man is so depraved. Verse 29 says they had become filled with every kind of wickedness and evil and greed and depravity. He even goes on and breaks that down further and gives this list of wickedness and and, 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 uh, deceit, malice, murder, God-haters. It says that people will create things that are evil, disobeying their parents, faithless, heartless, and he goes on. He says actually at the very end of that passage that people who live like this deserve death. But yet it says they continue to do it and approve of others who practice it. Wow. Going into chapter 2, still dealing with the subject of sin. Paul begins to speak specifically to the Jews in the church. And he begins by saying they were judging the Gentiles hypocritically. Okay? Being God's chosen people, they always felt that they were better. They always felt that they were superior, yet Paul says there in chapter 2, verse 1, you pass judgment, but yet you do the same things. 
He then just flat out tells them in verses 5 through 11. He says, look it, you guys as Jews are not just simply going to get a free ride because you're a Jew. You see, the Jews had this false sense of security. We're heaven bound because we're Jews, right? But yet in verse 9, in chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says, there will be trouble, there will be distress for every human being who does evil. Everyone. He he even spells it out. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Both parties, doesn't matter. And then after he explains to the Jews that they're actually going to be held to a, a higher standard because they actually have in their possession the law of God, right? In other words, they should have known better. He tells them, starting in verse 17, that they better get off their high horse, okay? He says, everything that you preach to the Gentiles, you don't preach to yourself. Verse 23 says, you actually brag about the law, yet you dishonor God by breaking it. It actually had gotten so far, Paul said in the very next verse, verse 24, He said, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, meaning you, the Jews. In other words, they were all talk, but yet they were no action. They claim one thing, and yet they live their lives in another. And with that, Paul decided to hit a core belief of the Jews, and that was circumcision. That, along with a couple other things, gave these Jews, once again, a false sense of security, or should I say spiritual security. The Jews regarded circumcision as a way of securing their salvation. Uh, A few weeks ago, I actually brought up three different uh, Jewish books and quoted them. One of them even simply said, they believe Abraham will stand before the gates of hell and stop any circumcised Israelite from entering. Wow. Now, was it a sign of the covenant? Was it a command of God? Yes, absolutely. But they believed it was their golden ticket to heaven. The problem is they saw it only as physical circumcision. They failed to see the symbolism that God intended. God wanted them to see the bigger issue, which, as you know, is always sin. They needed to have what the Bible calls a circumcision of the heart. And God actually told them this in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, Deuteronomy 10, 16, as well as Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4. But Paul says right here in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, he says, and this is, this is hard stuff. Imagine if you're a Jew listening to this. He says, a man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly. Can you imagine being a Jewish man and saying, you're not really a Jew? What? He says, no, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew, or he's a real Jew, he's a true Jew. He says, if he is one inwardly, And circumcision is a circumcision of the heart. He says it's by the Holy Spirit. It's not by the written code. It's not by the law. 
Wow, can you imagine hearing that? Circumcision became nothing more than a ritual because they never developed an obedient heart and submission to God. A lot to think about for the Jews in that passage. Well, at this point, we came to the very last section that you and I had studied together, which was a few weeks ago, and that was chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Now, this is a very interesting section of Scripture, and it's going to lead us into our text this morning. And so Paul began this chapter knowing that what he just said, what you and I just talked about, was going to raise some questions. If not, if not raise a few eyebrows. How's that? He just told them in so many words that being a Jew, that being God's chosen people did not make you more deserving. Being a physical descendant of Abraham did not make them spiritual descendants. And therefore, they were not going to get a free ride into heaven. Even though physically circumcised, they were still lawbreakers and they fell short of God's glory. Therefore, as he said earlier, what they needed was a circumcised heart. It's always an inner thing, isn't it? It's always your heart. It's never some outward ritual. It's never religion. It's an issue of the heart. Well, knowing that this was absolutely going to shock many Jews to the core... What Paul does here is he begins to ask questions that he feels they would ask him, okay? And then he goes ahead and he answers it. In other words, if Paul was there in Rome speaking to them, after he read, for example, chapter 2, he knows many hands would come up. Um, Paul, hey man, I got a question. After he said what he said, you know they were going to have some questions. And, and he's right. I mean, he literally just shot down everything they believed for themselves as Jews. They believed they were spiritually secure. They were heaven bound. But yet Paul, who happens to be Jewish, told them otherwise. Chapter 3, verse 1. Here is, here is Uh, one of those questions Paul feels they would ask. He says, well, well, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or for that matter, what value is there in circumcision? In other words, so Paul, does being a Jew not have any benefit at all? And he simply answers the question in verse 2. He says, well, actually much in every way. First of all, They, meaning the Jews, have been entrusted with the very words of God. Folks, the Old Testament scriptures was committed to Israel's care. Okay? Now, in addition to that, that's all Paul wrote right there. But in addition to that, there's all these things that are listed in chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. Okay? You'll notice there in that verse... Paul says, first of all, when you say first of all, there's going to be more than one thing, right? That's why he says first. There's got to be a second and a third and fourth. All those things are over in chapter 9. Okay? So he starts it here. He says, here's the benefits of being a Jew. He starts it here, but yet he doesn't finish what he's saying until chapter 9. And he gives a list of things. Okay? Now, once you read all of those... There is no question, folks, there's no question whatsoever that the Jews were special people. 
okay? No one else received any of these benefits. Not one Gentile nation had any of these privileges. Certainly they were not given the law of God. But that being said, as Paul has already discussed, it did not include salvation. You can't just live life your way and just say, well, well, I'm a Jew and be protected from judgment. Which, by the way, still many Jews believe today. Now, as far as all the other questions, I don't have time to go through all those, but if you want to review them, questions are in verse 3, verse 5, and verse 7. If you were not here that week when we went through this text, uh, I would encourage you, or maybe you missed that Sunday for whatever reason, I encourage you to go to our online there, and there are hundreds of sermons, but you can see those. They're all laid out. Dave has put them all laid out there so you know where Romans is, and you can go through it yourself, okay? I encourage you to do that. Now, Knowing what Paul has just written to the Jews in, in the church at Rome, okay, there were a lot for them to think about, right? He has yet another question to ask, and this is where we're going to begin this morning in verse 9. Notice what he says. He says, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Well, not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. So kind of wrapping up everything he's talked about so far in chapters 1, chapter 2, even the beginning there of chapter 3, he simply says, well, so what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Now, just so you know, especially for those of you who may have studied Bibles, there is a disagreement amongst who the we is. It's not major. It's not going to change anything doctrinally, theologically. But there is a, a, a disagreement of who the we is in this verse. Now, we know the we includes Paul, hence the term we, right? But is he speaking of himself and the other believers in the church at Rome? Or does the we speak of Paul as a Jew and he's still speaking to the Jews in the church, the one he's been appealing to since chapter 2, right? So is it Paul as a Jew still talking to the other Jews in the church or is it Paul as a Christian talking to the whole church as Christians? For me, I don't see any reason to make a change at this point meaning I think he is still speaking to the Jews that he's been confronting since the very beginning of chapter 2, okay? And so by asking the question, are we any better, right? Listen, folks, there's, there's no other group out there who had this mindset that they were superior than the Jews. The Jews believed that. So when you see the question, are we any better, I think he's still dealing with the Jews. So I'm going to go with the translation of the ESV this morning, for those of you who have the ESV. It says, are we Jews any better? The word Jews is not in the original Greek. It's implied. But I believe that is a correct statement. And of course, as you know, he asked that question, are we any better? And he gives the answer. He says, well, no, not at all. Jews and Gentiles you know what? We're all in the same boat. He's just been talking about that. He says we are all under sin. Hence, you have the second part of the verse. What does he say? 
He says, we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Are we any better? No. I've already told you that. No, is kind of what he's, he's saying there. And that's, and that's true, right? He, I mean, he's already made that charge. We went through part of that in our review He just got through telling them, starting in the middle of chapter 1, about the depravity of man, both Jew and Gentile. He says, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you look like. I don't care where you're from. You have a sin problem. I don't care if you're a Gentile or even if you're a Jew, you got a sin problem. And then in chapter 2, we see specifically the Jews that they too, yep, were in bondage to sin. And as I said a few minutes ago, this was necessary for the Jews in the church to hear this. Okay? I mean, it's really important for everybody, but it was the Jews who believed they were a cut above. They believed they were the righteous. They were the ones who were justified before God simply on the basis of their Jewishness. In other words, because they were chosen by God, because they were descendants of Abraham. They believed we are special people. They believe we are favored of God. And that's why, if you go back and read chapter 9, which I already mentioned, that's why it says they, the Jews, are, have been adopted as sons. That's why they have the divine glory. They have the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the patriarchs, all these things. That's why they say they're special. And that's why God gave them all those things. In addition to that, not only did they believe they were special, but they also believed Gentiles were pretty much the lowest. You know why they believed that? Well, actually, it was very simple. It's because they were not Jews. That's it. You weren't a Jew. Remember, there's only two groups of people, right? The Jews and then everybody else, which were Gentiles, non-Jews. So we look down on the Gentiles because they're not Jews, And this is partly why Paul confronted them in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Look over there. Look at what he says to them. He says, they believed that they were a guide for the blind. Right? So the Jews were the guide. Guess who the blind was? Anybody? The Gentiles. That's who they believed was the blind. He goes, you believe that you're a light for those who are in the dark. Yep, Gentiles were the dark an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants. They believed that they were everything. The bottom of the barrel, the infants, the foolish, right? The blind, all these, those were the Gentiles. But they were the light. They were the guiders. They were the teachers, the instructors of all these people. They always placed themselves like that above the Gentiles. And you'll see, I'm not going to read it, but in the following of those verses, Paul confronted them because even though they said all those things, they lived their lives no different than the Gentiles did. You say that you're this, and the Gentiles are that, and you're this, and the Gentiles, but you live just like they do. He says you're absolute hypocrites. And this goes back to our point this morning in chapter 3, verse 9. Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. Everyone. Okay? 
Now, saying that, what better way to convince the Jews in the church than using the Old Testament as a backup, right? Even Paul himself, as you know, is a Jew. He's also an apostle. He he himself has been chosen by God. He knows the best way is to go straight to the Old Testament scriptures to prove his point, okay? So what he does in verses 10 through 18 is Paul begins to pull from the Psalms, okay? Not just to make one point, but make many similar points. They're all going to point to one thing. He's going to use similar points, but they're all going to point to one thing, and that is the fallenness of everyone. I don't care if you're a Jew. I don't care if you've been blessed. I don't care about this. You're fallen. You're sinful, just like the rest of us. See? Now, in verses 10 through 12, these are pulled from Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. And so here in verse 10, look what he says. Maybe familiar to some of you. There is no one righteous, not even one. I'm going to say that again. There is no one righteous, not even one. Boy, that's about as clear as it gets, isn't it? Now, this point was made in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, that the Jews, like the Gentiles, they were all under God's wrath. Right? I read it earlier. Remember what it says? It says there's going to be trouble. There's going to be distress for every human being, everyone, not just some, every one of them who does evil. He says that's Jew and Gentile. He says first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. So he's already told them that. And of course, right here in chapter 3, verse 9, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. And by the way, notice he didn't just say they're sinners. He says they are under sin. Sin. In other words, they are presently found guilty of it. They are under sin's condemnation. It's a little stronger statement than saying, well, you're sinners. No, you are under, if maybe you should say under the penalty of sin. Folks, listen, righteousness is the standard to enter heaven. Righteousness. Yet what does he say? No one is righteous. He just said it. But that's the standard to enter heaven. He just says, but there's there's no one righteous. No human being on his own accord is right with God. Now, it doesn't mean they can't do a right act. They can, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about doing a good deed. He's saying no human being in and of themselves is righteous by God's holy standards. And you'll notice it doesn't say uh, 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 no one except for the Jews. It says no one. And he even makes it clear. Not even one person, none, zip. As I've said, folks, the Jews were a blessed and a special people. They were privileged. No one's debating that. That's absolutely true. But that did not provide for them salvation. They didn't just get this instant shoot into heaven because they're such special people. And that's what Paul is trying to tell them. Oh yeah, you've you've been blessed, but guess what? You're sinners. You're evil. You're depraved like everybody else. See, in chapter 2, verse 11, where it speaks once again of Jew, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, 
he says, God does not show favoritism. I like how he followed it up with that. So it made it a little more clear for us. I don't care who you are. God isn't going to show any favoritism. Folks, the Jews had no choice but to find themselves in the same grouping as the Gentiles. And that group was the none of you. (laughs) That was the group. Not a Jew, not a Gentile is righteous. Not even one. They're all in the same group. They had no choice but to be in that group. Now, as we move into the very next verse, he's still going to be pulling from Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. And we find out that not only are men depraved, all men, and we saw that, of course, in chapter 1, but not only are all men completely and totally depraved, but they are also spiritually unaware. What does he say in verse 11? First he says, the beginning, right? There's no one righteous, not even one. Now he says, there is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. Okay? Now, these two points, by the way, are going to go together. There's no one who understands. It should be really there's no one who understands God. That's the implication. There's no one who understands God, and therefore there's no one who seeks God. Okay? Now, Paul pulled this from Psalm 14, verse 2. And I'm going to read that for you, okay? In Psalm 14, verse 2, the original... It says, the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any who understand, any who seek God. Now, the implication here in Romans is that there were none. He didn't give us that answer in Psalm, but Paul's saying, well, the answer's none. God looked down and there were none. There were none who understood. There were none who sought after God. And so with reference to God, he's saying that the mind of the natural man doesn't get it. And in reality, he doesn't want to get it. Okay? Remember, folks, this is Paul's overall point, isn't it? All men are sinful. All men are depraved. That's his one point throughout this whole text. He's just going to break it down in different verses. So here, man as we just saw in the previous verse, innately, or if you will, within his own nature, doesn't seem to have the ability to grasp God or his standard of righteousness. And to be honest, he just doesn't want to. Man isn't sitting out there and saying, man, I really want to know God. I want to do everything that he wants me to do. I'm going to completely and totally live for him. Man is not saying that. Listen to 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The natural man, the natural man is the unregenerate, the unbeliever, right? Just in its natural state. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Why? He says, for they are foolishness to him. Nor, listen, can he even know them because they're spiritually discerned. You might say they're spiritually dead. They don't have the ability to make a spiritual decision. They're the natural man. They don't have the Holy Spirit, right? He just said that. They think what the Spirit says is foolishness. Paul mentions something very similar in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. Speaking of the unbeliever, he says, they are darkened in their understanding 
They are separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Man has no desire to know God. They have no reason to acknowledge God because as you can understand, that's only going to get into the way of their sin, isn't it? Folks, I can go back to my late teens and the last thing I wanted was God in my life. I wanted to sin. If I, if I did this or followed God or became a Christian, I didn't know what it meant at that time. Then I couldn't live like this. I couldn't act like this. I couldn't talk like this. I don't want that. God was going to get in my way. And that's all man does. I was just the example of millions and millions of people. So no one understands God, and therefore Paul says no one seeks God. No one. Okay? Hence Paul's point, which is the wickedness of all men. Folks, listen to me. Man only moves towards God when God moves first. Do you understand that? Man is pathetic. Man's depraved. Man's sinful. Man's evil. We don't say, boy, I really want to know God. <laughs> Whoo! That's what I want. I don't want this life of sin. No, that's unfortunately what we do want. In John 6, Jesus said it so clearly, and hence he uses those words, no one, no one can come unto me unless the Father draws him. No one. No one means no one. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Man doesn't want it. Man doesn't seek that. Man doesn't understand, as we just got through saying. Well, if those two verses weren't enough to convince these Jews that the entire whole of humanity is sinful, is unworthy, is depraved, then Paul has actually a little bit more. Coming from Psalm 14, verse 3, he says here in verse 12, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. First thing he says here in this verse is all have turned away. Now the first thing that came to my mind was literally was chapters one and two. Keep within the context as well anyway. So what are they turning away from? Right? All, that's all, that's everyone, have turned away. What are they turning away from? Well, back up, if you would, to chapter one, starting at verse 18. Mentioned this this morning in the Bible study, the wrath of God. Look what it says, 18 and following. It says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all of the ungodliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And listen, since what may be known about God is plain to them. How? Because God made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made or what has been created, so that men are without excuse. Did you get that? Now listen, listen, verse 21. For although they knew God, meaning they knew of God, what he just got through saying in those verses, What'd they do? It says they neither glorified God, him as God, or gave thanks to him. Their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And here it is, folks. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. God revealed himself to man in a limited form, but he did so through creation, right? And what does it tell us? Man said, no. He just said, he just read, no. I would rather carve something out of a piece of wood is basically what you're looking at there. I'm choosing an idol. God revealed himself to me through all this creation. I have a limited knowledge of God. And man said, uh, no thanks. I, somebody, you know, whittle that. Where's Jed Clampett? Somebody whittle uh, an idol for me. They, they literally exchanged the glory of God. Said, no, no thanks. How's that for turning away? Right? Or how about what we discussed earlier in chapter 2 about the benefits of being a Jew? I mentioned numerous times that list in chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, about how they have been given the law of God. The Jews and only the Jews were given the law of God. You know, Paul mentioned the law 19 times in chapter 2. <laughs> 19 times he mentions the law in chapter 2. Only the Jews were blessed to have been given this, right? What Paul calls in chapter 3, verse 1, the very words of God. The Jews were blessed to have been given the very words of God. Here it is. They possessed it. They were taught it. Chapter 2, verse 17 says they relied on it. Verse 18 says they were instructed by it. Verse 23, they, they even bragged about it, even though they constantly dishonored God by breaking it. And as I read earlier in verse 24, it was so bad they blasphemed God among the Gentiles because of how they dishonored his word. They were taught by it, they instructed it, they bragged about it, they relied on it. They have had opportunities to know God. But as Paul just got through saying, they turned away. I mean, they have, were more blessed than anybody else ever as far as what God gave them. They turned away from it. They said, no, that's all right. That's all right. So still in verse 12 here in chapter 3, they have all turned away, he says, and now he says, together they have become worthless. Worthless. The word worthless there, and we're talking about spiritually, Right? spiritually worthless. This is only used here in the New Testament. It's not used anywhere else. And it literally means unprofitable. You and I may say good for nothing. Okay? Now grant this, that, that very same word, remember Paul pulled this out of Psalm 14. That word in Psalm 14, 3, which is where he's getting it from, it literally means moral filth. Moral filth. As one Hebrew dictionary says it, it describes humankind as corrupt and dependent on evil. That's humankind. It's corrupt, dependent on evil. Wow, how's that for being worthless, right? Man in his natural state, folks, is, is like that spiritually dead branch, and, of course, that should remind you of the illustration, remember, in John chapter 15, right? 
Jesus said, he is like a branch that is thrown away, a branch that is withered. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Well, if that doesn't describe that word worthless, I don't know what does. All have turned to way they have together become worthless, useless, moral filth. Just, just, I can't do anything with them. Talking about mankind as a whole. And therefore, finishing in verse 12, Paul follows this up by says, there's just no one good, not even one. Now, to me, this comes across as kind of a summary statement of those first three verses, okay? He's just gone through verse by verse, and then he says, guys, I'm telling you, there's just no one good, not a single person, okay? Go back and look what he says. Look at the words he uses. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Who have turned away? All have turned away. Together they have become worthless, moral filth. And then he says, there's just no one who does good, not even one. (laughs) There's a whole lot being said there in those three verses. And Paul's trying to make this this point, see, literally, there's just no one. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you declare. I don't care what religion you have. I don't care if you're a Jew. I don't care if you're blessed by God or what you feel. But I hope you're catching the drift here of what Paul is describing here as the whole of humanity without exceptions, okay? Now listen, folks, Paul is not picking on the Jews, He just wants them to know that they're in the same boat as the Gentiles. He doesn't want them to have a false sense of spiritual security and and literally die and rot in hell like anybody else. They just need to know they're no different than the Gentiles. Being blessed, being privileged, which they were, did not make them holy. Listen, folks, man is not good. We hear this junk once in a blue moon. Well, you know, I think man is inherently good. No, that's baloney. That's just some man's opinion. Man is not good, okay? The only way that people come up with this stuff is when they begin to compare someone to somebody else. That's it. What they call good is simply a little less evil than the other. That's it. But as you know, that's not how God works. And God has the final say. God is the judge. So as Paul is pointing out in this text to these Jews that every human being, including them, and everyone who professes Christianity for that matter, we must ask ourselves the same question. And that question is, Where's your security? We know where the Jews' security was. And so Paul had to write and tell them, that's that's a false sense of security. There's no security there. But what about Christians? The same question has to be asked. Where is your security? Well, 
you know, God is good, and he's not going to condemn me. That's some people's security. You know, God has a big scale in heaven. He's going to out, my, my goods are out going to weigh my bads. I know that. That's my security, right? I go to church. Wow. How many millions of people say that that's their security? Oh, yeah, I'll be fine. I go to church. And we can sit here and go on and on and on. Where is your security? Folks, listen, security only comes through the forgiveness of sin. That, as you know, that is through the cross of Jesus Christ. If your security for heaven is based on anything else, no matter how sincere it is, no matter how religious it is, your security is nothing more than a feeling. That's it. It's a feeling. As we saw today, and we're going to continue to see next week, mankind is a moral wreck. A moral wreck. There's no exceptions. None. If it wasn't for the grace of God, if it wasn't for the mercy of God working through Jesus Christ, you and I would both get what we deserve. Because all of us are in that text. We're all there. See? So walk away today praising God for the Lord Jesus Christ that he took our sin and he bore it upon himself. That even though we are still not worthy, our security is in Christ. Our security is in the cross. It is not in you. It is not in a denomination. It is not in the fact that maybe you've gone to church for 50 years. It's in Christ. It's in the cross. If it's not, it's a feeling, and you need to get your heart changed right now. Right now. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for our time. Thank you that we can go through this text and and begin to realize that even though uh, Paul in this situation in the first century was dealing with the Jews who, who had a false sense of security, they felt they were right with you, heaven bound, because of who they were, that he had to explain to them that every single person is evil, is, 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 is wrong, is depraved. But Lord, to say all that is we have to realize that we're there too. Help us to understand, Lord, that to never look at ourselves as being special, to never look at, I- I'm smart, I get it. To never look at ourselves as saying, I'm going to heaven, and-, and I'm proud of that. Lord, we need to humble ourselves, and we need to recognize that we're involved in that very same group. doesn't matter Jew or Gentile. How many Christians today have a false sense of security? Lord, help us to understand that w- we are only outside of that, and we can have a security because of Christ, not because of who we are, not because of what I claim, not because of the church that I attend. Lord, always help us to set every single solitary thing aside and look to the cross of Christ, because without that, uh, we too, as uh, as Paul said in chapter 2, will get what we deserve. Lord, help this sermon to cause us to realize that every human being is totally evil, depraved, doesn't matter how nice they may be as we compare them with somebody else. But Lord, therefore recognize that everybody needs Jesus. And Lord, remind us daily to thank you for what you've done because we do not deserve what we can one day have. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.